Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve, and it is great to have you with us. The purpose of NatSec Tech is to explore emerging technologies and explain why they're important to you and to the nation's security. Our guest today is Ramsey Brown, CEO of Mission Control, a machine learning governance platform for accelerating quality, velocity, and trust in artificial intelligence. Ramsey, great to have you with us. Gene, a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about synthetic labor. And I have to say, when I Googled synthetic labor, it was all about inducing childbirth. I presume that's not what you're working on. Explain. No. So synthetic labor is a term that my organization, Mission Control, and our corporate entity, the AI Responsibility Lab, has been working on to describe what what we should be thinking about when we think about the AI systems like ChatGPT or GPT-3 that people have been playing with. When you when you play that story out only a few months into the future, so we're not talking 2040, we're not talking 2060, we're talking 2023 and 2024 and 2025. These tools go from being assistants and uh, pieces of software you're using to being incorporated more directly into business processes and the jobs to be done inside our companies. They begin adopting personalities, they begin adopting names, maybe uh, AI-generated faces, and a variety of competencies that make them more like a labor force and less like a tool like Microsoft Word or Google Sheets. And that shift of moving from AI as tool to AI as a laborer capable of performing business tasks on its own is going to represent one of the most fundamental labor transformations in human history. It is functionally on our doorstep. And our organization's goal is to build the ideas, tools, and community to help us navigate that with security and resilience and our values in mind. So are they going to replace humans in the workforce? They already have. The question is, what things will they continue to replace humans in the workforce for? If you asked people 30 years ago, we thought that the role of automation was to take jobs like driving cars or picking up trash or pouring cement or flipping hamburgers. And if you ask in 2023 what they're taking the jobs of, it is entry-level accountants, radiologists, educators, painters, poets, CEOs, the things that we told ourselves had very human components to have been demonstrated to be automatable, and we are only this far into the game. We are we are not very far into this game with artificial intelligence, and we still are seeing that these jobs can be done by machines. So the question is not what will get replaced, it's on what timeline things will be cheaper for organizations to do with synthetic people and synthetic labor than real human laborers. And that represents one of the most tectonic shifts in our relationship with our, each other and the state and economics. And we need to figure out what we're doing there. Now, wait a minute. Are they going to replace everybody? If I fall and break my wrist, is a machine going to set my wrist? If I have a leak in my kitchen, is a, right. some form of artificial intelligence going to come in and do the plumbing fix? No. It's not, I mean, it, when we want to talk about the, the future in the 10 to 20 year time scale, we can look at advances in robotics and embodiment and say yes. But in the next five to 10 years, the answer is no. What it is, is that when you go to that hospital, that hospital system might have employed 15,000 people 
in 2018 or 2019, or even 2022, that were administrators and in accounts receivable and clerks and data analysts. And a very small part of that pie was the person who helped set your wrist. What the hospital system is looking at is saying, for the jobs to be done in our organization, especially given that we need to do more with less in a global recession, how can we invest in automation and do a reduction in force? So it's not that the doctor is going to be a robot. It's that every person the doctor used to rely on is increasingly going to be intelligent software. And that's important because we're not saying all the jobs go. We're saying that we need to brace ourselves for a double-digit standing permanent unemployment for people who we told go to college, get a job, learn to use uh, Microsoft Office. It's those people that make up most of the economy for services, and that's what's at risk. So you mentioned some of the creative fields, and we have seen AI artwork coming to the fore. Um, yeah. Certainly, uh, ChatGPT can write a piece of poetry, write a sonnet, write a haiku. Can they replace, for instance, musicians? They already have. So we look back a few years and people had started building AI-generated music and it sounded okay. And then someone recognized a, a few months ago that there's a way to visualize music and you can get one, one image that does a snapshot of all the audio, audio waves of a, of, a, of a piece of music. And you could feed that to something like Stable Diffusion or Dolly and ask it, can you, here's the label. This is jazz music played in the style of Charles Mingus. Can you create a new one for me that's kind of like this? And it doesn't quite know what it's doing. It doesn't think it's making jazz. It's just making another image. And you take the image it made and you put it through the reverse process and it sounds like Charles Mingus that was never existed before. It sounds perfect. In this sense, we've, we found out to decompose different types of human behaviors into things AI can understand. And piece by piece, these are starting to fall over to automation. But I've been told that machines cannot replicate the human singing voice yet. Uh, so if you try to build something out of uh, pipes and mechanisms and 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 wrenches and you try to, you try to wrench together a thing, you're not going to sound like a human voice. If you try to make something that has the 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 beautiful timbre of of a, an expert opera singer, it's not going to be quite right. Um, and at the edges of human creativity, there's always going to be a place where we break something new out of the soul and the human spirit, and we, we drag it through. The problem is that most people are listening to top forty. And top 40 is quite automatable. That's that's already mostly software and 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 folk coding. So it's not the question of can we can we break the the best of human performance. It's what's the median? What are most people engaging with? Can you automate Taylor Swift? Can you automate Lady Gaga? Yeah, that's the part that we're looking at. That's that's mass culture, and that's what's falling over. If so many of these jobs are going to be eliminated, what should kids be studying in school? That's a really good question because we think that historically the things that have brought us purpose and dignity and well-rounded hearts and minds and souls aren't going away though the fundamental pursuit of truth and beauty is virtuous in and of itself and over the past you know post viennese school of thought of, of way of thinking about the relationship between psychology and education we've had this idea that that education was not as to build a better soul or mind or, or society it was to get a job and in a world in which Fewer and fewer humans are required to produce record levels of productivity because we found a way to trap previously human processes into automatable processes. I think more than ever, the, the challenge becomes what speaks to your soul and what makes you come alive for the pursuit of the passions of truth and beauty, given that gross world product is going to become decoupled to the human labor it takes to create it. 
I think this becomes very much like a more classics Renaissance approach to what it means to to have a good domesticated mind. So the implication of this is that most of us are not going to have jobs. If that's the case, how do we support ourselves? How do we support our families? Does there have to be some sort of government or industry subsidy or what? If you listen to the some of the smartest people in the world who are thinking about this from the political perspective, I'm thinking of a couple couple senators that I've heard speak on this matter of what it means to live in a, a, a post-human, post-industrial type of economy. If you listen to the people who are building these companies, Sam Altman, the CEO at OpenAI, who is the team behind ChatGPT and GPT-3 and GPT-4, speaks vocally and openly about the need for universal basic income because he's looking at a, an economic model that got us this far in which the capital markets and investors have figured out how to funnel unprecedented reserves of savings towards the development of machine intelligence. And we stand now at the precipice of the scaling of that. And we're looking at all the incentive structures that got us here and saying, if we keep playing that game, that's not going to work for most humans. And there is a very real outcome in which we have a record high wealth gap globally and a handful of trillionaires. But that seems like almost the worst possible outcome. So a lot of people are saying that, and myself included, there's like we're adults we can talk about the idea that certain economic doctrines get us really far and then the circumstances around them materially change and to be adaptive and resilient we have to take on new ways of doing we've done this in the united states over the past hundred years we've had economic doctrines change wildly to adapt to the new conditions of modernity the way we run our economy today as a country does not resemble a thing as it did 110 years ago and it would not surprise me that mature states looking to get out ahead of this looked to the people who are building these tools for inspiration about what might it look like for us to build a world where people's ability to survive and have a cohesive and flourishing society is decoupled from their need to punch a clock on the nine to five. You ask them, well, then what do people do? How do you stay busy? Every adult you know, present company included, both you and I, knows how to find purpose in their life. A lot of us do that through our occupations. A lot of us do that through our communities, through our, our religious institutions, through our families and our friends, our purposes, our passions. Humans are very resilient at finding ways to keep themselves occupied. I don't think there's anything to worry about there. So you look at the United States right now and there are debates about doing away with Social Security, doing away with Medicare, the thought of instituting some sort of uh, universal subsidy for people to survive is going to be unattractive. Uh, to some in the political sphere who'd probably have to implement something like this. So if yep. nothing is done, if there's a resistance to this, what are the risks? Could we have widespread social unrest? Um, you could. So I'd say that you could look at what happened in 2020 for the beginning of what we, we have affectionately dubbed modern monetary theory and this idea of uh, airdropped money onto citizens, uh, stimulus checks and uh, you receiving a stipend for doing nothing other than staying home, not contributing to a global biological threat and having a U.S. passport. We've already run a live experiment on this, and we know some of the outcomes from this. The questions become, how does that relate to our ability to meaningfully produce? So the problem we had in 2020 was that production and consumption were down and money was given out. When money is being given out, but production and consumption are up because these are done on the back of automation, this becomes a slightly different formula. And organizations have tried this at different levels of municipalities. What happens when you give people money? What do they do with it? 
Well, there's always a contingent that likes to fall into this post-Ronald Reagan trap of Cadillac Queens that says that if you give people money, they'll just stop trying. It's actually very few percent of people. It's a very small amount of people who say things like, I'm just going to opt out of my passions in life because someone handed me a check. Um, what you get mostly is people able to reinvest that into building meaningful and purposeful parts of their community and their lives. And it builds a resilience that we should come to expect from adults. Most people are adults, even when given the means to exist and live indoors as decoupled from their work. And I think that we've run enough good experiments here to say that there is a there there. And it should be taken seriously that relatively serious business people are looking at this and saying, this is not only a viable outcome, it is probably the preferred outcome, lest you have a political institution that wants to dig its heels in into deregulation and decommissioning of any sort of social state. That's a, a surefire route to civil unrest. So one of the things that has fueled achievement uh, in the United States is the desire to better one's station in life. Under yeah. this model, basically, you're stuck where you are, right? Yeah. And the desire to, to better one's station in life has been uh, a really excellent pull in some ways. It's simultaneously also the cause of a lot of permanent precariousness and the feeling of, you know, you're just one bad decision away from living outside that a lot of people in the states uniquely experience compared to other post-industrialized competitive G7 nations. So the, the other side of that coin is if you talk to most people born between 1988 and uh, 1994, most of us feel we're just one or two bad decisions away from destitution, uh, which is a, a unique consequence of the bottoming out of anything like a safety net. Um, and, and you talk to our near age peers abroad in other post-industrialized countries, and they don't have those same types of feelings because they've understood there's a social contract between individuals in the state. And they still feel that their stations and lives may be bettered by their independent work. So um, when you give people the, the means to feel secure in their survival, it does not dampen their desire to push for personal excellence. It decouples their stress response from failure. I've been asking a lot of questions about the downside of this. Tell me what the upsides are. The upside is you get to live in a world where the marginal cost of one more thoughtful, creative person in the economy is the electricity it costs to run them. Right now, the marginal cost for me as a business owner of one more thoughtful, caring person on my team is quite expensive. And they sleep and they require shots of espresso and they like to take walks and they do all of the good things that make life worth living. Um, but as as far as economic output goes, you know, you get a good solid eight to ten hours a day out of someone of, you know, five to seven, six days a week. And that's great. That's even a startup, which is pushing hard. To imagine living in a world where the marginal cost of adding one more competent mind into the economy that runs 24-7 and much faster than we do with a variety of robust skills is it, it's hard to uh, you can you can try to wrap your mind about how good that is, but the the easy way to do it is to think about what it means to take every piece of, of human flourishing and we're still unlocking part of the puzzle. How do we use energy really effectively? How do we unlock new ways of using energy? Because so many things are downstream of our cost of energy, our ability to have fresh drinking water, to be able to grow food, to have enough information and energy cheap enough that everybody gets to have a piece of the pie. All these things are, are downstream of the cost of an electron. Um, if you have a hundred million new minds working on that simultaneously, constantly, you unlock so much human flourishing 
that it's hard to imagine how good a life could be defined by grace and peace and dignity. Um, you look at our biggest challenges around aging and disease being tackled constantly by 100 million fresh minds trained in the state of the art on this, working on it nonstop. Uh, you look at uh, whether or not we can become a, a spacefaring civilization. All of our goals that seemed too good to be true suddenly become realistic when the marginal cost of one more mind working on it is just electrons. That is a that is the future we are at the doorstep of, and that is that is a why organizations like mine and, and other people working on AI and artificial general intelligence are so excited about this. You say organizations and governments need to be thinking about this, working on this. Are they? They are. Uh, so almost every major country uh, that is uh, has a heavy investment in high technology, the United States being a leader here, has a national AI strategy, has regulation being put in place to make sure that we've got the best shot at capturing all the upside while minimizing the downside risk in AI. And organizations on the private sector, uh, you think the hyperscaler companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook are pushing forward as fast as possible in a dead arms race to be the first to build a generally adaptive intelligent machine. And they're working as fast as hard as they can. Um, OpenAI, the makers of ChatGPT, getting a lot of publicity for this with things like GPT-3, ChatGPT, and in uh, Q2, we're going to see the release of GPT-4, which is going to, we believe, completely blow us all away in terms of its capabilities. Um, they're in a dead arms race because I think they understand that the first team across that finish line uh, has a good chance of becoming one of the dominant market players in the entire human economy because they would be the owners of a thing that was capable of robustly solving all problems. Um, but are smaller organizations thinking about this? The, the mom and pop operations that are all over the country, are they devoting any brain space to this? Increasingly, they are. It's wild from when you and I met over email to today where we get to air this episode or record this to when this will air uh we have ryan reynolds previously listed as the the sexiest man alive recording an ad for a, a mobile phone company written by chat gpt and that was the shtick in the ad this this type of technology is beginning to what we call cross the chasm of adopters between early adopters tech innovators bleeding edge to mainstream uh, adoption People are becoming aware between this, between this and plagiarism with ChatGPT and universities and high school students, this is starting to become adapted and people are going to find new and novel things to do with it because that's what people do. No matter what the, the people who built this think this is for, everyone's going to find a way that this fits into what they need out of their life. And we see signs that that's happening right now. So it isn't hype to believe that so much of the workforce is going to be replaced by machines. It's already happened. So if we look at the amount To a of, minimal degree, though. Not the kind of displacement that you're talking about. So, so if we look at the amount of people it takes to accomplish different types of business unit tasks, we've found that on Average, the number of people per firm is going down. So there's just a proliferation of new openings for new firms because productivity goes up. Uh, the question becomes, what happens when those tools become more like the 
workers themselves and managers to defend the or their return on investment of their line of capital they're investing in this firm make the decision to say, I actually can do what I used to do or better with fewer people more robustly by using these new technologies that are more like people than they've ever been before. That that to us is the fundamental question, because if that happens, the the game theoretics of this, so I do it and you know I'm doing it, or you incentivize to do it too, that kind of relationship cascades through the market quite quickly. And we've seen that certain types of jobs that used to be done by humans just aren't done anymore. Uh, and the question becomes when more and more jobs become like that, and it becomes that um, things that we think of today as being very human, like accounts payable, accounts receivable, technical writing, computer programming, basic analysis, when those become like saddle making for horses in the 1800s and the early 1900s, there aren't that many saddle makers anymore. There's a handful. They're excellent. But compared to the amount of people who used to be responsible for reshoeing horses or resaddling them, this becomes more like the the analogy. And you say, well, those people will retrain. But if the, if what we automated was human intelligence itself, this horse metaphor becomes a little better. It would be inane to say that the advent of the automobile created more good jobs for horses. The horse population dropped precipitously because as we replaced animal muscle with machine muscle, the demand for animal muscle went down. When we replace human intelligence with machine intelligence, the demand for human intelligence will go down because the machine intelligence is robustly intelligent. So that's where this becomes a, a society and a national level question of what do we do then to maintain a resilient and flourishing society? What's the time frame? Oh, we, we say 2027 is going to be really interesting. Um, we think that what we're seeing in 2023 in the capabilities space, so how good is the system and how widespread is it? Um, is already extremely impressive and basically a transformational technology. Um, the more public sector and private sector senior leaders we speak with who are clamoring to understand what their what their chat GPT strategy is, so to speak, which what they're really saying is um, this new wave of generalist technology is hitting us so fast that we can't keep up strategically. We're seeing that already in, in the first quarter of 2023. If you want to think about how much technical progress will happen between 2023 and 2027, that's four calendar years, but approximately six to seven years of technological progress will happen between now and then because these tools are being used to create the next version of themselves. Technical people who are responsible for building software are using AI to do so, which makes the life cycle faster. When people say accelerating change, we think that they mean like more gadgets. No, what they really do mean is that every day that passes will be as if 1.5 or two days passed. That's, that's why we look at this and say, could we imagine six to seven years of technological progress compressed into four or five calendar years? And what does that mean? That's, that's why we, we look at this and say we see some serious transformation happening on that timescale. Ramsey Brown, founder and CEO of Mission Control. Thanks for this conversation, as anxiety producing as it may be. <laughs> um, Ramsey is going to join us for our next episode to continue our conversation about synthetic labor. We're going to talk about ethics, regulation, and national security. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gene Meserve. This is NatSecTech.